Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander Podcast, where birders talk birding. I hope you got a chance to listen to the last episode of the Bird Bander Podcast with Will Brooks and Jason Vassallo. They talk about their respective big years. Will had a record-breaking Washington State big year, where he found 377 species of birds, far exceeding the prior record of 370. Jason did an ABA big year where he traveled extensively throughout the lower 48 United States and less extensively in Alaska. And he explored, saw birds, hiked national parks, and generally tried to have a fabulous amount of fun and a wonderful experience seeing as many birds as he could in the United States in a year. Both fabulous undertakings, and I really had fun talking with them about it. On this episode, I have Tiffany Kirsten as my guest, another big-year birder. Tiffany just finished a record-breaking big year for the lower 48 United States, where she saw 726 species of birds, all the while promoting awareness of safety for women alone in nature. A brief aside here to clarify big-year regions. The ABA, or American Birding Association area, was historically North America north of Mexico, essentially the continental United States, Canada, and Alaska. In 2016, the ABA added Hawaii to the ABA area, and that greatly changed the scope of an ABA big year, so that now there are two ABA areas recognized for big year efforts, the continental ABA area and the total ABA area, including Hawaii. Another region targeted by big year birders is the lower 48 United States. The number of species reasonably expected to be found in the lower 48 is significantly less than in the continental ABA area that includes Canada and Alaska, largely because of the Asian vagrants that can be found in far western Alaska, especially on the islands, and because it's much easier to find many of the far north birds in Alaska where they're relatively common than in the lower 48 where they're either only rare vagrants or otherwise pretty uncommon. For perspective, my guest Tiffany found her 726 species of birds in the lower 48 big year. The record for the continental ABA big year was set by John Weigel in 2016 with 784 species. In that year, he recorded 721 of those species in the lower 48 states. And his competitor in that year, Olaf Danielson, recorded 723 of his 778 continental ABA area species in the lower 48 states. Tiffany has a fun story to tell about her year. I think you'll enjoy hearing from her on the Bird Banner Podcast number 122. Help me welcome Tiffany to the podcast. Tiffany, thanks for being on the podcast with me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I followed your big year, you know, off and on, more towards the end of the year when it really picked up pace than earlier. But uh, you, uh, you had a terrific year in 2021. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's an understatement. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, Tiffany did a lower 48 big year last year and broke the, AB, broke the record uh, for the most species seen in one year. Tiffany, tell me about the beginning of that year. How did it start? So I guess it kind of goes back to late 2020. I actually, um, I lost my job. I was managing a nature center um, and I got let go. So, and I had bought a house actually here in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas earlier um, in 2020. So I was kind of at a crossroads where I was feeling finally grounded in the Rio Grande Valley. I've been living here over eight years now, but just had finally bought a house and um, had lost my job. So kind of just deciding, 
figuring out what was next, um, applying for jobs. Obviously, I was concerned about the ability to pay my mortgage. And I um, was applying for jobs nonstop. And I figured in the meantime, I would bird guide on the bird guide and, and to pay my mortgage, which I've done on the side for about 10 years. Um, and I knew I was good at it. So I just, you know, started taking clients and showing them birds and using that money to pay my mortgage. So I did that for a lot of December, I actually had a lot more business than anticipated, especially with no warning and no real marketing strategy or anything like that. Come January, I had a week off and a friend of mine had never averted Florida before. Um, so we ended up spending the first week in January um, driving uh, with COVID. We weren't going to fly anywhere, but driving from South Texas to the Florida Keys um, and got red-faced, uh, sorry, red-legged thrush and black-faced grass quit and Cuban peewee, uh, American flamingo, which was a huge nemesis of mine for years and years. So I had a really good trip there and we picked up all the kind of Florida specialty species for my friend. And I actually came back with 200 species for the year. Um, not having counted at the time, I didn't pay any attention to how many total species we saw on that trip until later on, I decided to do a big year. And I looked back, I was like, oh, it's exactly 200. So got back from that trip and was guiding more just a few days after I got back from that trip. Um, I guided a big year birder who was doing an ABA big year, uh, Charlie Bostwick. And, um, you know, he's kind of the one that put the bug in my ear. He said, well, you're in between things right now. You know, you're young, you're able to, you know, move around a lot and whatnot. I said, but not everyone can do a big year. I said, you know, I, I have a house, I have a dog. I need to, I need to find a job. I need to buckle down and find a job. But that kind of put the bug in my ear. I still was like, yeah, that's crazy. So I continued to guide for a few more weeks through the rest of January and then early February. And then I had another week off where I had no clients and I was feeling very stressed uh, about work and what I was going to do with my life. I was getting a lot of job interviews at this point, but um, no offers. And so I was like, well, I just, I need to get away. Um, I don't really have the funds to go on vacation, but I have a little tiny Chevy spark that takes almost no gas. Uh, I'm going to leave my, my dog with my temporary roommate that I had also to help kind of cut expenses. And I'm going to go to Arizona. There's five life birds that I need there. I'm going to go to Arizona, spend a week camp, uh, you know, cook over my camp stove, just super cheap, low budget trip. Um, do a loop, get the five birds and then come back and then start getting more clients again. Um, so I left and I spent one day in central Texas camping. Um, and then one night in West Texas at Franklin mountain state park in El Paso, um, and camped there and met some of my neighbors. Um, another one also had lost her job uh, due to COVID related reasons. So kind of made some friends there and the next morning I got up and went to leave the campground and I had flushed some scaled quail with my car on the way out of the park. Um, and that was 287 species for the year uh, on February 10th. So at this point over the last couple of weeks, people had been reaching out to me, friends of mine, um, you know, asking what's going on. Am I doing a big year? Cause I had left for Florida on January 1st, just completely coincidentally. Um, so everyone was asking all these questions, the nights in all the rarities and all the Rio Grande Valley specialties, uh, while guiding. And so I just, I don't know, I got on my social media right then and there and my Facebook and my Instagram. And I did a little story. I said, I don't know what's going on at some point. I'm going to stop and get a job, but I'm going to try to do a big year. And today I'm driving to Arizona. And instead of going for those five targets, I'm going to go try to see how many species I can see in Arizona. 
Very cool. Uh, and it didn't hurt that the, the person you went to Florida with had never been to Florida. So you picked up all the exotics and all the things that you probably would have blown off if you'd been by yourself. Exactly. I actually have a really funny story about common, um, common mina, which is a kind of, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a dirt. I literally ended up finding one later, um, in a dumpster, but on my trip in January, uh, my friend needed that as a lifer. So we had stopped at like a, a intersection of a street and I don't know, I was doing some research or something on my phone. I literally didn't even look up to see that bird in January. Um, mm -hmm. just, I'm not a fan of, introduced species at all sure. I was like whatever and I'd seen them before and I've lived in Hawaii and they were like yard birds when I lived in Hawaii um so yeah there's definitely a lot of species on that trip that if it was just me going uh you know just on a casual Florida birding trip I wouldn't have bothered trying to see again so things were working out at the beginning you're just uh living right for some in retrospect good for you good yes for you. and then you went on through Arizona and I think you continued your trip from there I did. So I, I had a decision to make because I knew it needed to be a budget year. And being in Arizona, I was more than halfway to California from from South Texas. So but I also didn't have a plan. And a lot of people that do big years on this scale, you know, develop a plan. There's been months planning out, mapping out where they're going to get species, where they're going to be when. Um, and I didn't have any of that. So I'd actually taken the list. Charlie had done the California from north to south a few weeks earlier. And um so he gave me his list of species um, with a few notes on locations where he got them, but it was mostly just a species list. So I took it, flipped it upside down. I was going to do California south to north. Um, I ended up going to San Diego and then working my way up to San Francisco, spent a few days up there, um, actually with my friend Dorian, who did a biking for birds. Uh, he biked thousands of miles around the country. Um, and so Spent a few days with him, got white wagtail and rock sandpiper, a couple of the birds that stand out from the San, San Francisco trip. Um, and then uh, actually got offered to go once I had kind of announced that I was doing a big year. Um, I got offered to go work for Swarovski at the San, uh, San Diego Birding Festival. So huh? I had to gun it back down there um, and I was able to do a, a free trip on a pelagic where I actually got paid a little bit um, versus having to pay to be on the trip. So, um, and that was a bit of a theme throughout the year working uh, as a field tech with Swarovski Optic has helped me uh, kind of limit some of my expenses and put me in strategic places where I needed to be. Good for you. Yeah, Durian, I saw Durian the other day. He's he's off uh, wandering for a year now. He, uh, he, I think he leased out his apartment and he and his wife who works for Airbnb are uh, just wandering all over is kind of a cool. He's on another adventure after his big year. I had it him. One of my, he was one of my earliest guests on the podcast. What a he's a good storyteller. He sure is. Yeah. Uh, so you so you swung up through California. Uh, did you caught at least a San Diego pelagic on that trip? Did you get another pelagic on that trip, or what else did you work on? Nope, it was just that. Um, and then the day after the San Diego pelagic, I actually ended up flying to Saxonbog because so this was. This was February, the second half of February, mm -hmm. um, maybe February 20th or so. And I, I realized that I needed to, most big year birders start in New England yeah. and try to knock out some of the winter things. 
uh, and or go to Sex and Bog in Minnesota. So I figured, well, I can at least knock out Sex and Bog right now. And so I actually flew from San Diego to save time because it was already getting kind of late for some of the boreal species. Flew from San Diego all the way up to Saxonbog, spent three or four days up there and made my way back, flew back to San Diego and then drove home from there by way of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I picked up uh, Pinion Pinion Jay and Rosie Finches and some other good things. Yeah, cool. Uh, Saxonbog in the winter is kind of a mythic place for birders. Tell me about it. Oh, it's amazing. So all these boreal species that are mostly found, uh, you know, in in Northern Canada and central Canada, make it just barely down into this bog habitat in the winter in Northern, very Northern Minnesota. Um, And so that's a place that lots of people go to see great gray owls and Northern hawk owls, which actually was one of my three biggest misses for the year. It was a rough year for them at the beginning of the year, January. Um, And they were slow in coming back in, in December too. So, um, and then uh, evening gross peaks and bohemian wax wings and common and hoary red poles. Yeah, really, really awesome place. Uh, it's known for being in the negative temperatures a lot in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. We actually super lucked out. Um, and the, it was in the 20s uh, when I was there. Relatively balmy. Yes, even though I was still freezing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. Uh, so, you know, living in, in the Lower Reed Grand Valley and visiting Florida and Arizona and a, a northern winter bird place, you got off to a great start. Uh, and how did things go from there? So from there, after Albuquerque, I came home and then I, I spent a little bit of time at home. I went and actually flew in March to Western Spindalis in Florida. Mm-hmm. Very quickly got sticker shock. It was the first time I'd ever chased a bird by plane in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that bird cost me like $940. Um, so I, you know, the yeah. car rental was $220 COVID this year with everything. It's interesting that plane tickets went up and then down and car rentals were really expensive, especially in the first half of the year. Um, so after that I, I went and thankfully I got it. Uh, it was very stressful for me. And this was true in November and December also chasing birds by plane, like it, whereas sometimes like chasing a bird with your car for a couple of hours might be kind of like an adrenaline rush and a thrill, like your body can't keep up with <laughs> adrenaline for like that long for like a day. So instead it's just like exhausting and stressful. And then when you get to finally see the bird, what might've been excitement in like a shorter bird chase is just like, relief. Like, Oh, I got it. Like this whole trip wasn't for nothing. Um, and especially being unemployed, it was like, Oh, at least I didn't waste this money completely. Um, which could have happened. Um, so anyway, after that trip, I was like, okay, no more. No, I I can't, I can't be chasing single birds by plane again. Oh, and I guess I should go back a little bit and talk about, um, my, my project launch, which happened actually just before the that Western Spindalis chase. Good. I wanted to make sure we covered that. Yeah, please. Yeah. So I had gotten back from Albuquerque and I guess I'll go back even further actually. So I was, I was leaving West Texas and I committed to doing a big year, February 10th. Uh, and then just a few days after that, there was a pretty highly publicized uh, sexual assault accusation um, within the birding community. And as a survivor myself, that really shook me. Um, and I was in the middle of Southeastern Arizona by myself, uh, when I heard the news and, um, 
you know, a lot of my friends uh, are aware that I'm a survivor. And so they were reaching out to me to check in on me to see if I'd heard um, and to see if I was okay, which, you know, was definitely appreciated. Uh, and I was sent the link to the article and I read the article and um, it was like, am I, am I setting myself up by completing this big year by I've just committed to spending all this time alone, you know, in all these remote corners of the country. And am I setting myself up to possibly be in a situation where this could happen to me again? So a couple more days went on and I still, you know, I really wanted to do this. I felt committed and I felt kind of, <laughs> I had publicly announced it, you know, on my social media. So I felt a little bit like I had to follow through as well. So I decided I wanted to do a big year, but I wanted my big year to have a greater mission. And I didn't know what that was going to look like at all. I had no idea. And I started talking with some friends about it. And then completely serendipitously, a couple of days after that article came out in the news of the assault, this company called She's Birdie uh, that markets and in, in personal safety alarms just showed up in my social media. I'm guessing it was probably like a logarithm because I'm into birding and the alarm is called Birdie. Uh, it company has nothing to do with bird watching. Their hashtag is chirp loudly. So the alarm chirps like a bird. So I contacted the company. I had a private donor that uh, was really interested in helping me start my project and funding the first hundred alarms at whatever discounted price I could get them from the company. So the company gave me, gave me a great discount. They gave me 50% off um, with the knowledge that the alarms were going to be given away uh, to the women that I would meet throughout the course of my year. Cool. Uh, so I secured those alarms. And by the time I got home from my California trip, they were actually sitting on my doorstep, um, which was awesome. And then I um, started my blog because um, I figured I needed an outlet for, you know, to get the word out and for people to be able to follow what's, what's going on with both the birding and with my alarm gifting project. And uh, simultaneously started a GoFundMe where every $50 uh, donated to my GoFundMe, $35 would go to my travel and $15 would go to purchase another alarm that I would purchase at the 50% off from the company to gift to uh, women along the way. Throughout the course of the year, my partnership with the alarm company grew and um, you know, they were really impressed with what I was doing and they started essentially matching the donations. So the entire $50 that people were donating were going to my travels, but their, um, you know, their funds were making the same impact in that the alarm company was matching the donations with, by giving the alarm um, to give away. So, yeah. That's very cool. I think uh, maybe even more important than giving the alarms off is just raising awareness. I think, uh, you know, I'm a, an adult white male and I feel you know, probably un, unwisely safe alone in nature. And I think it, it's good for people like me and others to recognize that a lot of people don't have that privilege of, of feeling as, as comfortable in remote places or in a lot of different situations. Yeah. And the conversations that I've had have been really powerful um, with both, both men and women about these issues. Um, and I think something happens when you give something to someone, um, they kind of open up. And so I've had a wide variety of reactions to gifting these alarms to women that I meet along the way. You know, I've had, I've had people share their own stories of safety or maybe when they weren't safe. And I've had some people share their own assault stories with me. And, um, and I've had some people just look at me and like start tearing up. And I've had some people shove $50 in my hand and say, you know, wanted to kind of pay it forward and say, buy one for the next person. 
Um, so it's been really cool. It's been really, I think, healing for me. Um, I had made business cards. So I was literally walking around the country all year, giving out business cards that the very first sentence said that I was a sexual assault survivor. And that was, I think, slightly traumatizing to me almost at first, but throughout the course of the year, it became um, a lot more kind of healing. Very cool. Uh, so Tiffany, you obviously have been birding for a long time. You said you've been guiding at least off and on for 10 years. Tell me your birding story. How did you get started in birding? Yeah, I got started birding when I was 12. Um, I was in sixth grade and my mom must have found it advertised in the paper or something somewhere. But myself in, at age 12 and my mom in her 30s uh, took this like six or eight week intro to birding class at a local nature center in Wisconsin. And I honestly, <laughs> I don't remember a lot about a lot of the trips we did and the birds we saw. I do specifically remember someone pointing out a yellow warbler and I, I couldn't see the yellow warbler. I couldn't find it in my, in, with my bare eyes or with my binoculars. And so I remember pretending, I remember being, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So pretty. Um, because I was embarrassed at age 12. I was like, why can't I find this bird? Um, but we took a field trip to see Santo cranes and there were about 2000 Santo cranes um, in the springtime, all doing their courtship ritual, dancing and calling in the back of a cornfield. And that was, that was my spark bird. And that was really the moment that I decided that birds were pretty cool. Good. Uh, and so you went on from there to, uh, you know, bird at least off and on through your youth. Uh, some, I was mostly a backyard birder and, you know, these were the days before, uh, internet at our fingertips. So I didn't really know where to go to find birds other than backyard birds. Um, and my mom didn't either. And, and she didn't continue birding after that class, but, um, I really picked it up again in college. I did volunteer, uh, waterfowl surveys for the U S fish and wildlife service and took field ornithology and really, Really, really enjoyed my field ornithology class and getting to see a lot of the variety of warblers that I probably missed in um, when I was 12 in that intro class that I took. Um, so I have a degree in wildlife ecology from, from Northland College. And then I went on to work for the Cape May Bird Observatory and for Massachusetts Audubon Society and did some field work in Hawaii, uh, misnetting and monitoring the honeycreepers there, actually, which was pretty cool. Back to your big year. I think of uh, any undertaking like a, a birding big year is about finding a list of birds, but it's also about places you go and people you meet. Were, were there some uh, people experiences that were especially uh, you know memorable or, or kind of fun for you or maybe not so fun? I went bike birding actually with, with Dorian. Um, we tried to find a harlequin duck. Unfortunately we dipped on the birds. So I can't say that I picked up a year bird bike birding with Dorian, but that was really fun. Um, so it was really cool to meet and to network with people along the way in part, one of my money saving techniques, right? So I've been getting a lot of questions like, well, she was unemployed and didn't have a job. And then she somehow still did a big year. I have all kinds of pe people wondering, you know, and making all kinds of kind of assumptions about <laughs> how I made this happen. Um, but part of it was the GoFundMe. Um, part of it was bird guiding in my spare time when I wasn't running around on big year adventures. Part of it was working for Swarovski Optic. But a par big part of it was also um, networking with people along the way. And so every time I would go to a new location, I would post on Facebook, you know, not super specifics because that would be dangerous, but generalities of what areas I was going to be in and what dates and looking for birders and especially women birders to meet mm -hmm. up with. Um, and so I did that in a lot of places, reconnected with friends that I've had from around the country, from, from jobs that I've worked all over and, and also met up with a bunch of new people that I had never met before. Um, 
And, you know, sometimes they would offer to pick me up from the, from the airport and save me the car rental. Or sometimes they'd offer me a place to stay or, you know, one person that I connected with was hoping to connect with more, uh, was driving through Oregon and we had time to stop. And so we stopped and we had lunch and she bought me lunch, um, which was great. So lots of, lots of connecting like that. One of my favorite stories, actually, I don't even know the name of the woman, <laughs> uh, but one of my favorite stories is I was driving through Northern California through the Redwoods. Um, in the fall, I did a trip up the West Coast doing a lot more pelagics. And that was where I hit 700 actually was on that trip and where I realized that counting up all the birds that I figured I'd leave aside because they were kind of one bird here, one bird there, Smith's Longspur, Oklahoma kind of a thing. There's nothing else there. I just figured, oh, you know, I'm not going to get them all. So I went back and I added it up and I realized, oh, you know, the record is possibly within reach. I was working my way up the West Coast and um, had gone all the way up. So I had done San Diego, uh, San Diego Pelagic, and then uh, California Morro Bay, uh, sorry, uh, Half Moon Bay Pelagic. And then went up to Washington State, did a Washington Pelagic out of Westport, and then was making my way back down. And I had some extra time to kill before I needed to be on another boat out of Ventura, California, mm -hmm. um, near, near LA. And so I had never seen the Redwoods before. So, I, and it was around my birthday. So uh, I was like, yeah, I'll spend my birthday time in the Redwoods. I had, you know, I didn't have anything productive to do um, with these other days, except for maybe possibly like fly somewhere and then fly back and then get onto the black. In the Redwoods, it kind of is a little bit productive. Maybe it didn't get you a bird. Yeah. Yes, emotionally productive, not, not being your number productive. Very, very true. <laughs> so I had this drive that was going to be, it was like three hours in from, I believe it was I-5, um, over west towards the ocean. It was one lane in, one lane out, super windy, no cell reception the whole time. And my phone was plugged in. It was navigating to my location. And I looked down at some point and realized, I think I was looking to check check the map or see if I had cell reception or something like that. I looked down and I realized my phone wasn't charging. And so I, you know, I jostled the cable on each side and, you know, figured that would fix it. And it didn't. So my, my phone charger was dead mm. and I'm in the middle of nowhere and I've got a couple hours to go still to my destination. And I, you know, it was like, I don't know, there was a gas station about halfway through. So I was like, well, maybe at the gas station, I can get a phone charger. And I got to the gas station. It was literally just gas, no convenience store. So um, a little bit later, I came upon some construction and it was, you know, I mentioned it was one lane in, one lane out. So they were stopping one lane and they were having just one lane at a time. And there was a woman that was a flagger and I happened to be the very first car that was stopped. And I, I was stopped and waiting. So I looked down at my phone and I was kind of zooming in to see, oh, it looks like there's maybe this little town up here. Maybe, maybe there's somewhere I can get a cell phone charger. And the woman came over, I had my window open because it was nice out. When woman came over and she said, oh, do you have cell reception here? I said, no, I don't. But, you know, this is my situation. Do you have any idea where I might be able to go on my route to get a new phone charger? And so she said, hold on. And she walked over to her truck and she came back with a phone charger and she gave it to me. And I had $20 already ready to give it to her. Just super thankful that I wasn't going to have to go out of my way to try to figure this situation out. And she wouldn't take my money. She said, I just want you to be safe. And I tried to give her money again and she wouldn't take it. And then, I, and then I remembered that I had the alarms 
And I was like, oh, you know, she's not a birder, but this totally fits. It's like the perfect person reason to give someone an alarm. Um, and so I gave her one of the she's birdie alarms along with my card and the little instruction manual for it. And uh, there was a few seconds left. We just kind of both looked at each other and realized the beauty of what happened, just like women supporting women, looking out for each other. Um, and then the the lead truck came through and it was time for me to go. That was it. <laughs> good, good story. Good memory. Yeah. Uh, so you made it back to the coast. We're getting to about the time of the year when you shifted gears, uh, kind of decided you were going to have to start flying here and there for a bird or two to approach the record. You were at 700. And I think before you broke the record was 724, was it uh, something like that? 720, 724 was the previous record. So That's 725 I mean. broke the record. Yeah. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you had uh, 25 or so birds to get in three months and uh, two and a half months uh, and a country to find them in. Yeah. How, how did you take off from there? <laughs> it's, it's definitely diminishing returns. I'll tell you that much. You know, people are like, oh, 700, you divide 700 out by the days in the year and it's like 20, what's 25 more, right? But so I had, um, after the Redwoods, I made my way down and I was on the Pelagic out of Ventura and I got Creveri's Merlette and Blue-Footed Booby was 700, which was very fitting. Awesome. It was a life bird for me. Um, and just like a really kind of symbolic bird that like non, non-birders know what a Blue-Footed Booby is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was doing its, its stereotypic dance with its feet and everything. It was amazing. Um, so, you know, it was after that trip... I worked my way back, uh, back home here to Texas. And it was like, okay, I'm at 700 now. Um, I have a, a, an Excel spreadsheet on my computer that I started maybe in April or so that I actually had the remaining birds that I needed left um, with their rarity code one through five. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the likelihood that I would get them was different than the rarity codes because it's a lower 48 big year. So some of the birds that are ones and twos are ones and twos because they're in Alaska or because they're in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went through and actually sorted through them and made my own rarity codes for some of these that were common elsewhere, but not common in the lower 48. And would after each trip, I'd go through and kind of delete what what I'd already gotten. So I had just a list of what was remaining, which the stress level went down. I checked off a lot of birds by April, um, getting them in migration. Mm-hmm. And so I went through kind of with more of a fine tooth comb and looked at what was likely. Um, and then actually went back to the ABA checklist and added some things back in that I hadn't realized might be a possibility. Um, and when I, when I crunched the numbers, I think it got to me just somewhere like 718 with birds that I thought might be mm-hmm. reasonably likely. Um, and that was also with counting things like Lasagra's flycatcher, which was a possibility to show up, but didn't. Uh, it was just really hard to know. It was really hard to count and be like, yeah. okay, you know, it's just, it's a rarity. It's got to show up and someone's got to find it and it's got to still be there by the time I get to it. Yeah. So it was, it was a challenge to think like, do I go for this or do I not? And it was definitely came down to like, you know, everything throughout the course of my big year, I think picked up speed slowly over time. At first it was like, well, can I make it to 700? Can I do this without getting a, you know, a regular nine to five job? And then it kind of just slowly picked up, up speed. But then once I got to 700, it's like, I'm either doing this or I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. And I could do this and not get the record, um, but, and, and spend all that money. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Some of it, honestly, money that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, 
And then at some point I was like, okay, well, I just have to try, you know, because I'm never going to do this again. I'm never, ever, ever going to do a big year again. Lots of people ask that, by the way. I don't know why they ask that. Never, ever again. Am I doing a big year of any sort? (laughs) That's not a ringing endorsement. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I just was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. But then it was like, I need to be all in. And then multiple times due to finances and concerns about, you know, paying my mortgage was like oh this bird shows up like i should be getting on a plane right now but i'm gonna wait two more days and see if it sticks around yeah that's that's a probably wise strategy from a just economy standpoint the lower rio grande valley was really good to you at the end of the year i mean there were some there are still some really freaking crazy good birds down there yeah yeah so i you know my strategy had multiple money saving strategies the one i mentioned was you know teaming up with people and getting rides from airports and and staying with people actually i ended up paying out of pocket for 18 nights in hotels my whole year and i was gone for 148 days uh some of that was you know a lot of that was camping um some of that was work with Swarovski where i did stay in a hotel but it wasn't on my dollar um Mm -hmm. and then some of that was staying with other other birders um, that I knew around the country. Um, But another money-saving technique that I had was to move as quickly as possible um, so that I was limiting uh, nights, possible nights in hotels, and I was limiting days of car rentals. And, you know, that made for some not as enjoyable as possible experiences. Minimizing sleep and relaxation, things like that. Yes, 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 (laughs) definitely minimizing sleep and relaxation and minimizing the amount of time to just enjoy the bird. You know, probably the average amount of time I spent at any bird that I went to go see in December was probably like 20 minutes Mm -hmm. Um, because then it was like, okay, I need to see if I can get out, get somewhere else like tonight or, you know, first thing in the morning or whatever. Um, And so another technique that I had was it's since I live in McAllen, Texas, uh, it's really different mission, Texas, just just next to McAllen. So I'd be flying out of McAllen airport. It takes two planes to get anywhere from here. It's pretty expensive for me to just get out of the Rio Grande Valley. I was flying American Airlines. Everything is through Dallas. So whenever I could be gone in November and December, I tried to like stay gone as much as I could, but still be moving as fast as possible. Like go pick up a bunch of birds. And then like once there were no more birds to pick up then I would look at maybe coming home until the next maybe couple of rarities showed up. So I could do kind of a loop mm-hmm. and the Valley kept pulling me home. So I was out uh, picking up a couple of other birds. And then the report that the social flycatcher in Brownsville was refound came in and it was like emergency trip back home now back to McAllen. Um, and so I flew back to McAllen and got the social flycatcher here in Brownsville um, and then went out and was doing another loop when, uh, you know, I was looking at Smith's Longspur in Oklahoma and the bat falcon report came out. It was like, emergency we need to go to an airport now (laughs) um so my plan to just be away as long as possible was foiled multiple times by these rarities in the valley but uh bat falcon was the bird that broke the record um which was absolutely amazing to do here in my home county and actually i used to work at santa ana national wildlife refuge and i'm on their board their friends board now um, so that's just a really, really special place to me so it had it was just being it was paying you back for all of your good work (laughs) The refuge, drawing in a bat falcon just for you. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Uh, so, uh, Tiffany, you're the you're the uh, lower forty eight record holder for the most species seen in a year. 
And that's a, a fabulous accomplishment. And uh, you have your own uh, guiding company now. Is that correct? Or service, I guess, on a company might be the wrong yes. term. Yeah, um, you know, and that kind of almost happened by accident, too. I think that the universe definitely pushes you to where you belong. Um, I think I believed that a lot less so, uh, say, two years ago. But I really, that's really the take home. One of the big take home messages I've learned over the course of this year is like, I, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm skilled, you know, um, I was managing a nature center and I was applying for jobs with a lot of them with Texas parks and wildlife department, assistant manager and manager positions and other positions with nonprofits and us fish and wildlife service all over the country. And I just couldn't get a job. And so this went on for like, I tried until like September, October. And at that point I, it was like, okay, well like the universe wants me to go elsewhere <laughs> right now. Um, and as I had mentioned the previous November, you know, I had more client, almost more clients than I knew what to do with when I wasn't even trying to get clients. I didn't really have advanced notice on the fact that I was going to be unemployed. So yeah, at some point it was like, well, if there's ever a time for me to try to start my own guiding company, um, it's going to be now. And uh, I, I was also hoping actually that uh, some of the publicity that I get from from breaking 700 and, and working towards the record. Obviously I didn't know that I was going to break the record, but I was hoping that that would kind of come back to me in terms of guiding clients um, in future years, which I'm seeing that happen already actually. So yeah, starting, I, I flew back home from my last trip on January 1st and took January 2nd to myself and then hit the ground running on January 3rd with full-time guiding here in the Rio Grande Valley. Very cool. Uh, so you're guiding mostly close to home? Mostly, yeah. Here I'll be our guiding, our, our big busy birding season here is like six or seven months. It's like mm -hmm. November to, to May. Um, mm -hmm. and so I'm going to be here close to home. I've got my house, I've got my dog. So I'll be here close to home guiding locally for those months. And then I'm working on piecing together some stuff and some trips for uh, other months of the year. So stay tuned on that. Yeah. Good. So how would somebody get a hold of you? If I, if I wanted to hire you as a guide in the Valley, how would I catch you? Yeah. So on Facebook, I am Nature Ninja Birding Tours. Okay. Um, and my website is tiffanykirsten.blogspot.com. Um, and all of my guiding, and that's where my blog is and that's for my big year. And, and that's also where all of my guiding information is. Okay. And what type of clients are you looking for? I do private tours. So um, I don't do any set departures. There's no signing up for trips, you know, from, from date A to date Z it's all, it's all kind of um, based on the client's needs and their available dates and my available dates. And then uh, the itinerary is customized based on what the client is looking for also. So I'll take anywhere from one to 12 people. Okay. So private groups uh, and uh, mostly in the Valley. Oh, I'm sure you've been around the country. If uh, somebody wanted to get a hold of you and pay you to take them somewhere else, I'm sure that would be uh, in the cards. Yes. Yep. That's definitely an option too. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, Tiffany, that is exciting. A uh, uh, year that started out as a, uh, maybe uh, going to be a tough time looking for a job, how to pay your mortgage, turned into a record-breaking big year and a new career. So that's pretty, uh, pretty fortuitous. <laughs> sure is. Good. Good for you, Tiffany. Thanks for uh, telling us your story. It's inspirational. I hope that it uh, you know, leads to a highly uh, successful career as a you know, bird guide and whatever else that becomes. Uh, so all the best to you and thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.
Good. You have a great, uh, great year. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Burb Banner podcast number 122 with Tiffany Kirsten. How cool that she was able to set this record and champion awareness for women's safety on her journey. Be sure to check out the links to her blog in the podcast notes and check the birdbanner.com blog for additional links and other information. Thanks for listening. Tell your birding friends about the podcast if you enjoy listening. And until next time, good birding. Good day.